If you take your Bibles and open them to the book of Ephesians, as many of you are aware, we've titled this little mini-series within this exposition of Ephesians, Chosen by God. I'll call today part two. Last week I stated that we would take two weeks, and let me warn you up front, we have a lot to get through It became increasingly obvious to me as working through in preparation for today that what I originally intended to be two messages is going to be three. (laughs) Or I could have kept you here for an hour and a half. I don't think that would have went over too well. That said, it would be a neglect of my responsibility first and foremost to the Lord And, obviously, to you, to rush this weighty topic and responsibility. Last week, I mentioned that in this message, we would deal with some of the objections to what I presented to you from the text of Scripture in Ephesians 1, verses specifically 4 through 6. And then we also stated we would deal with some of the fruit or life application that flows forth from this incredibly powerful doctrine. That said, I'm sure we all would agree, what good is it to rightly divide the word of truth and then not walk it out? We need to spend time on the fruit of it, the application of it. For that reason, next week, we will devote the entire message to that. I just did not feel comfortable tacking on to the end of a message such as this, life application, rich life application that flows forth from an understanding such as this. After next week, then we'll pick right back up with our exposition uh, beginning in verse 7, probably through verse 10. Now, for the flow of this message and the layout I want to read the passage up front and then jump into our introduction and body. Many of you know that's a little differently than the way we would normally do it. That said, would you stand with me, please? We'll read the same text from last week, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. You may be seated. Now, introduction-wise, I need to lay some groundwork here, which will be absolutely vital, critical, essential, For a topic such as this, let alone 
um, this passage. I promise you, we need it in order to shed light on this topic as a whole. It'll be a little bit lengthier introduction than what you're normal, normally accustomed to with me. That said, you'll see the reason why we need to establish this. Having said that, I want to begin this morning with a little dose of what I'll say cultural lunacy. Unfortunately, we, we put up with much of this type of uh, insanity in the day and age that we live in. There's a certain pastor that I follow on social media, and I was able to witness this on social media, and I want to share it with you. I promise you it will make sure that you're attentive and ready to go with this illustration. I recently listened to a young lady from this TikTok account, if you will. Some of you may not even know what that is. I don't have a TikTok. I do have Twitter, but I don't have TikTok. But that said, she described what is known as xenogender. Now, that might be a new one for most of you. It was a new one for me. I've never heard of xenogender. She went on to describe it as a gender that cannot be defined by masculinity or femininity. She explained it's not how you relate to a gender experience, but to a certain thing. Now, hold on to yourselves. This illustration is about to go off its rocker. Certainly did for me as I was listening to this. The example was given by her that some individuals now identify with, yes, cake gender. These individuals claim to personify things such as being light and fluffy and sweet. It gets worse. There's certain layers and flavors to your gender. I told you it's going to be off the rocker. What can we say to that? But come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Wow. What are we coming to when even now transgenderism is not the apex of insanity? How do normal thinking people even give tacit approval, let alone widespread approval, to such insanity? Several weeks ago, we used the phrase the self-autonomy of man in identifying some of the challenges that faced Ephesus. For us, there's no difference. Man has and will always desire to be in control. Who are we to infringe upon man's right to make his decisions for himself? For our illustration... For a man to decide to identify with cake gender. Or a man to identify as being a woman or vice versa. Who are you to tell him or her that that is not appropriate? This leads me to a metaphorical picture. I want to draw 
for us in this message here today. You see, all of mankind is born into this world facing a chasm, a gorge, a ravine that is absolutely impassable. No matter how intelligent or capable one deems themselves as being, they cannot get to the other side. Even though they think they're in control, their minds are actually enslaved with invisible shackles, if you will. Not to mention, when looking at the other side, which he knows exists, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, he has absolutely no desire to even cross. My friends, this is the reality of the cliff which all of mankind faces. This valley of total depravity is absolutely essential for us to grasp if we are to have a proper understanding of the doctrine of sovereign election and, better yet, a greater appreciation for it, which we'll spend the entire message next week on. If left in our rebellion and our self-autonomous desires of the flesh, there's nothing left for us but the justice and the condemnation that each and every one of us deserve. We need our shackles around our mind to be loosed. We need a new heart and a new will to even desire the other side. To make a decision to cross to the other side. Better yet, we need a bridge to get to the other side. And beloved, that is sovereign election. That is the redemption that we have in Christ. That is the sealing of the Spirit in which Paul speaks at great length in this sentence. Verses 3 through 14. All three persons of the Godhead working in perfect Harmony and unity to secure a definite salvation for his people. You see, in coming back to the absurdity of identifying with cake gender or transgenderism, we're all reminded of a principle that is set in stone. We in and of ourselves, cannot change who we inherently are. The prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 13, verse 23, in speaking of who we are in the flesh, said, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Can you do good? Who are accustomed to doing evil? If anyone even takes a moment to think of our own lives, 
this depravity only becomes that much clearer. What child, as precious as they are, is not inherently bent towards disobedience? Who among us, in remembering our past lives apart from the grace of God, does not feel the weight of a life that practiced such sins as lust, anger, blasphemy, idolatry, coveting? Every single one of us understand that. This is who we were. We identified with sin. It's what we wanted and there was no changing it in and of ourselves. So, given that illustration, hopefully we're beginning to see what this radical corruption entails. To that point, how might we define the doctrine of total depravity? And I'm still in my introduction. Let me read to you what we believe the scriptures to teach and what we teach here at Miriam Christian Chapel concerning the doctrine of total depravity. This is our doctrinal statement. We believe that man was created in the image and likeness of God, but that in Adam's sin the race fell, inherited a sinful nature, and became alienated from God, and that man is totally depraved and of himself utterly unable to remedy his lost condition. Notice the two adverbs in that doctrinal statement, totally and utterly, as a point of emphasis. Now, one might say, what about the scriptures? I'm sure we all would agree that they are far more important than any doctrinal statement. In some respects, perhaps we could have waited to Get to Ephesians chapter 2 and we would have had our answer. Nonetheless, from a pastoral perspective, I thought it would be prudent to briefly cover this beforehand, especially given the questions that can arise concerning a topic such as this. With that said, let's briefly see where from the Scriptures... One deems terms such as totally depraved and utterly unable to remedy his lost condition as appropriate to communicate what the scriptures teach. You can make a note and reference it later. I won't turn there. Following the flood in Genesis chapter 8 verse 21, Moses states, For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Psalm 51.5 reads, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead 
in your transgressions and sins. Or Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Or in John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We could go on and on and on concerning Scripture's testimony to the total depravity of man. But here's the point. Once we come to terms with a biblical understanding of total depravity, the doctrine of sovereign election becomes oh so much clearer. What's more, it often provides a framework for us in handling some of the objections as such that we will deal with here today. There's more we could say. But for now, we'll leave a more thorough examination of total depravity for Ephesians chapter 2. With that foundation in place, introduction complete. Let's look at our first common objection to the doctrine of election. And that is number one, the free will of man. What is behind this subjection of the free will of man? Typically, when these two words are used, they're used to protect the autonomy of man or his ability to choose God in and of himself. That's to say that he is intelligent enough or capable enough to choose Christ within himself. Now, if we're taking our doctrinal statement at face value, we already have a problem with this perspective of free will. It states, once again, man is utterly unable to remedy his lost condition. Now, before I touch upon the scriptures, which... Once again, we would all affirm are far more important than any doctrinal statement. I want to be clear about something specifically, especially regarding this topic. If one rejects this idea of the free will of man in and of himself to choose God, then I am proposing that you should reject that idea this doesn't mean that we are robots. We are, as human beings, volitional creatures. We make choices each and every day. But here's the question. What is behind those choices? What motivates those choices? The early church father, Augustine, stated... 
Command what you will, O Lord, and give what you command. What was he trying to insinuate with a statement such as this? The reality that, yes, we have a responsibility to choose. But yet, the reality that none of us have the power to do so in and of ourselves as well. Having said that, just because on some basic level, in our finite human minds, an idea that, yes, seems paradoxical, does that mean that we should redefine what the Scriptures teach? Let it never be. Let us say with submission, as the Apostle Paul stated in Romans chapter 11, who can know the mind of God? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Nonetheless, how does Scripture help us make sense of this subjection? We don't have the time for a deep dive. But let me give you four texts to consider. Number one, concerning this alleged free will of man in matters of spiritual discernment. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 reads, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them. Because they are spiritually appraised. John chapter 8 verse 34. We read Jesus' words when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. In the original language, this is in the present tense, this verb to commit. It's a habitual, continual practicing of sin that is continually in bondage to sin. And then one more in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. We read, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh. That's us, if you are in Christ. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That portion of that verse, indulging the desires of the flesh, it could literally be translated continually doing the will of the flesh. So what are we to make of this? It all comes back to what drives our nature. What is it? 
that we are in bondage to? Do we have a quote-unquote free will in and of ourselves to choose Christ alone in and of ourselves? The answer is clear from Scripture. Our minds are in bondage to sin. We are enslaved to sin. We are creatures that make choices every day, but we do exactly what we want and what we desire in and of ourselves. Thanks be to God that he gives us a new nature. Thanks be to God that he gives us new sight. That he gives us a new heart that enables us to even cross that valley of total depravity. That, my friends, is solely an initiating work of God alone according to his unrestrained free will and choice by the grace of God alone on your behalf. Something that in and of itself drives us, as we will look at next week, to even greater levels of conviction and commitment for Christ. With that said, it's this truth which often leads to our second objection. And that's number two. That this doctrine is unfair or unloving. Now, first of all, some of you might recall that we briefly mentioned one of the responses to this last week. We said, who among us would desire fairness to be the arbiter? Now, given a little bit more discussion on total depravity, hopefully this is becoming clearer. To illustrate it, it's as if every single one of us, apart from the grace of God, are murderers, continuing to murder, and looking at the face of authority with contempt and with no sign of remorse whatsoever, but a desire to continue to practice what is in our hearts. What would fairness require of that if we were to use our standards? Sounds a little bit like Romans chapter 3, does it not? Verses 14 through 18 read, Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, the reality of mankind's situation is that God would be perfectly just to condemn each and every one of us to hell even for what we said, thought, and did within the last 24 hours. This should be the case if it's our standard for fairness. 
Several months ago, we spent quite a bit of time in our exposition of the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, there are sobering words from the prophet that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9, verse 13. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, those words have caused much uneasiness amongst many believers throughout the ages of time concerning the thought of hate and God being in one sentence together. Beloved, we've got it all wrong if that's our first thought. How could God have ever loved Jacob? How could God have ever loved you, brother or sister in Christ That fact in and of itself should cause each and every one of us to stand in utter shock and amazement and bow before the holy God of the heaven and earth who chose to bestow His grace upon us when we were worthy of none of it. With that said, Let me briefly lay out the crushing blow to this objection of unfairness concerning the doctrine of sovereign election. Turn back to Romans chapter 9. Coming off the context of Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and This individual golden chain of redemption that will never be broken. Paul begins to speak about his love for his people. Along with identifying their individual destinies designed by God. And then even after expressing his his deep sorrow that not all Israelites would be saved. Look at what he says in chapter 9 verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What do we have here but yet another encouraging reminder of individual sovereign election. They are not all Israel. And then, and then he goes into, after speaking about the children of the promise and the children of the flesh, look to what he says about Jacob and Esau in chapter 9, verse 11. He says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything, good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So again, a clear representation of sovereign election within the scripture. An election that's not based on anything to do with man, but upon God's choice alone, before they had done anything good or bad, before they were even born. Be that as it may. 
Here's the kicker when it comes to answering the objection of unfairness. Look down at verses 14 through 16 as Paul himself has to deal with this objection. Verses 14 through 16 we read, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, on God who has mercy. Do you see it, my friends? Why did Paul have to communicate this rhetorical question? He needed to deal with the charge that was obviously even within the first century context. Sovereign election is unfair. Many of you know how he goes on to respond to that. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What authority does the clay have over the potter? What authority does man have to say why? To quote Luther in reference in this section, he said that God's will has no why. So here's the question for us all to consider as we wrestle with the tension that is clearly on display in a text such as this. Do we want to be on the side of Paul? Or do we want to be on the side of the detractors? Do we want to be on the side of those that said, that's not fair? Or do we want to be on the side of the inspired writer of Scripture? So much more we could say. But at the end of the day, Here's the core issue. Man is not the determiner of what is just and what is loving. Look at verses 21 through 23 of Romans 9. Where does not the potter have a right over the clay? to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. Once again, beloved, we come to the Scriptures with a sense of humility, a sense of submission to embrace what God's Word says, to understand once again that I am man, as the prophet Isaiah stated. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our ways. 
we embrace and accept the scriptures as is. Because we are the clay, not the potter. The potter. So, take a deep breath. And let's finish this race with the final objection. Remember, we stated this last week, but the finish line is one where our hearts will dance for joy. As Spurgeon said, this is the most blessed doctrine in all of Scripture. More on that next week. Nevertheless, the final objection is number three, this word foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. As a reminder from last week, this objection revolves all around this idea of the, the quarter of time discussion. The idea is offered that that God looks down the corridor of time and sees who will believe. And then, therefore, that's the key word, elects them based upon what he foreknows or what he foresees. In all reality, total depravity is enough here. To answer this objection. If man is utterly unable to remedy his lost condition. And he is. Then God must be the first cause. And initiating work. Of salvation. To argue that. God's choice is based upon man's choice, is not a God who's sovereign, beloved. What's more, we've already established man's inability. Is salvation all of God alone? That man would boast in God alone? Or, is there some ability in man, some men, obviously, that is more superior to others? Friends, if that's the case, then man has a reason to boast. Nonetheless, let's not simply argue in logic, but Scripture. There are only five instances in all of Scripture, of this verb to foreknow. Of the five instances, three of them, God is the subject, two, man is the subject. None of us would ever debate the distinction between God and man. That said, we need to keep our evaluation to that of God as the subject. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the first instance, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Secondly, in Romans chapter 11, verse 2, in that passage we read, God has not rejected his people 
whom he foreknew. And lastly, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, speaking of Christ, we read, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So, what is the common denominator? Looking at God as the subject for foreknowledge. It's all about an intimate and personal knowledge and relationship. Whether it's the covenantal, intimate relationship God has with his people. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he called, he justified and glorified. Or the intimacy of the personal nature within the Godhead itself. They're known in a special and intimate way before time began. Now, you know what this word does not refer to? It does not refer to an object or a thing or a foreseen or foreknown faith. Even if we look to the Old Testament for an equivalent. An equivalent that speaks to a personal and intimate understanding of the verb to know. It's a special, unique word in the Hebrew. One that is utilized often in a covenantal nature. In Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, it's the same word that's used to communicate the physical relationship between a husband and a wife. It's deeply personal. All that to say. To use this objection as an argument for a foreknown or foreseen faith is simply an insertion into the text. It's not there. Now, here briefly. I need to address one other area that's helpful with this objection. If God has chose intimately and personally a relationship with his people before the foundation of the world, is there another group that is not intimately foreknown? To answer that, I want to share three texts with you from the scriptures. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, often referred to as the first gospel states. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Key word, being enmity. Or concerning this different offspring or different seed, listen to Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. 
Jesus himself says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And then in Jesus' high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, verse 9, Jesus says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So within these three texts, what do we have? We have enmity. We have a proclamation of never knowing. And then we have a refusal to pray for the world, those who were not given to the Savior. Now, before we're tempted to cringe at the thought To reject this thought, let's go back to our introduction. What does the entire world deserve apart from the grace of God? What did each and every one of us deserve apart from the grace of God? Nonetheless, God who was rich in mercy when we were dead in our transgresses and sins, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. Going back to our Andrew Murray quote from last week, water finds the lowest place. When we come to understand That God in his mercy, when none of us deserved it, chose to bestow a special love upon you. We fall at his feet and say, thank you, Lord. I am unworthy, but you chose me. And for that, we can boast in him alone Nothing in and of ourselves. Moreover, our hearts can dance with joy, with much commitment and conviction in life application, which we'll spend the entire message on next week concerning that. What that looks like in light of these momentous truths that lead us To say, use me, Lord, for your glory and for your kingdom. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we come before you as unworthy people, yet made worthy by the blood of the Lamb. We thank you, Lord that you chose us before the foundation of the world. In love, Lord, you predestined us for adoption as sons according to the kind intention of your will. 
Oh God, we praise you, we worship you, we lift up the name of Jesus, we boast in you alone, oh God. Create in us a hunger and a thirst and a passion for righteousness. Create in us a hunger and a thirst and a passion for evangelism, Lord. Because you still are electing your people. And in this unbelievable way, you use us as a means to proclaim these great glories and excellencies of heaven. In the mighty and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray.